This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Getting tested for COVID may soon be as easy as blowing out a puff of air. Last week, the FDA approved the first ever COVID breathalyzer test. A company called Inspect IR Systems is producing 100 of these tests per week. Joining us now with the details is infectious disease specialist, Dr. Mia Teramina. She works at Dooley Health and Care. Hi, Dr. Teramina. Welcome back. Hey, Sasha. I have never heard of anything like this before, doctor, except to, of course, detect alcohol levels. So are there other diseases besides COVID-19 that are tested in this way? You know, the first disease that comes to mind that we do test with a breath test is for an H. pylori bacteria, which can infect the stomach and gut. And this bacteria can produce uh, a substance that can be detected in your breath. So essentially, you can be tested for it in an office setting by blowing into a bag and then having that bag inserted into the testing device. It's called a urea breath test. And that's one of the standards of care for the diagnosis of an H. pylori infection. But aside from that, I'm not aware of any uh, testing via breathalyzer that will uh, detect viruses. So this would be a first. I see. So what you just described, is that how this one would work for COVID? It's similar. As time goes on and devices become used for years and years, they become less bulky and less cumbersome. This particular device that's been approved with emergency use for the detection of COVID is still a rather large device. They're saying it's about the size of a piece of carry-on luggage. So this is a big device that would need to be in a uh, healthcare setting. And from what I can tell, you're blowing directly into the device with results obtained in about three minutes. Ideally, you'd want to be able to have a much smaller device or a much smaller way of capturing the breath and Mm -hmm. then inserting it into the machine to make it more user-friendly and widely uh, used in all of our clinical sites. Well, while I love you know, getting things quickly. I feel like we've gone from, remember when tests would take days, right? The, the PCR oh, test, days. we'd go from days. I mean, 72 hours was a pain to, to wait for your results, but we, we went through that. Then we had these rapid tests that, you know, one hour, 15 minutes with these, these at-home tests, now three minutes. How accurate is this? You know, they are showing a decent amount of accuracy. It looks like for people that are known to be positive for COVID in the the test subjects, it detected that positive about 91% of the time, which is very good. And if someone is truly negative, the test even uh, was better at, at... correlating with a true negative test, almost 99% correct. So if you're negative, in all probability, you're negative. If you're positive, about 90% of the chance you're going to show a positive test on this breathalyzer machine. And they are still recommending that uh, these are verified with the gold standard PCR test afterward. Do you think that we'll see these in doctor's offices soon? I think if it's something that can be rolled out and you can do multiple specimens over the course of a period of time, this could be something that as a point of care test and future surges could absolutely be a tool. All right, let's move on. I've got a few things to talk to you about today, doctor. And first is long COVID, right? There's new research showing that vaccines lower the risk of getting long COVID. Why is that? 
So make no mistake, the best way to not get long COVID is to not get COVID in the first place. That's going to be our biggest protection here. And the biggest tool we have in this fight is to be up to date on our vaccines, fully vaccinated and boosted. And that is going to decrease your chances of getting COVID. But if you do get a breakthrough infection, you're more likely to have a less severe course, a less amount of active virus in your system. And if you're fully vaccinated and boosted and then, you know, have contagious virus that you'd spread to someone else, they're likely to be exposed to less of an inoculum as well. And this will have a logical conclusion that having less virus for a less duration and a less severe course Mm -hmm. should intuitively have less long COVID repercussions afterward. And we are seeing that in some studies. How common is this for a COVID case to turn into long COVID? You know, studies can show anywhere from about 10% of the time to 30% of the time. Uh, So that's as many as one in three people uh, having long COVID complications. Now, many folks will have some fatigue, maybe a little bit of shortness of breath and cough that lingers uh, for several weeks. But what we're really looking at when we talk about long COVID are folks that have more than four weeks and approaching many months of symptoms. Some people do take weeks and weeks to recover. But if you're still dealing with COVID symptoms, fatigue, loss of smell and taste, neurological side effects, three to four months after the fact, these are the true long COVID issues that are, are becoming pervasive after people are recovering. Yeah. And, and I wonder why some folks get long COVID and others don't. You know, there's lots of different theories as to what is happening when we have long COVID, whether it's an autoimmune response, whether there's a reservoir where there still is some active virus in some of our tissues, um, whether patients have these long COVID syndromes because other viruses are reactivating and waking up in their system and causing that fatigue, some fevers and other things. So there's a lot to be learned here. We're still trying to find out why some become sicker and others don't. And while we do know that our vaccines can decrease the chances of a long COVID complication by as much as 50 to 80 percent, fully vaccinated and boosted people who have done everything right, so to speak, still have about a 10 percent chance of going on to having some long COVID complications. And that's so scary. So, so scary. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and that is infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina of Dooley Health and Care. We are discussing a new COVID breathalyzer test and also the latest COVID guidance with the doctor. Um, You know, this time last year, Dr. Teramina, we were talking a lot about reaching herd immunity. I remember asking you a ton of questions on that. Why didn't we get there? You know, there's a few reasons why we didn't get there and and possibly looking back, you know, was was it realistic to ever think we could get there? I was truly hopeful at this time last year. This is right on the, the crux of where every adult was eligible to get vaccine and we were scrambling to get people vaccinated as best as possible. We knew we would have to vaccinate faster than this virus was able to mutate. And if you remember, last year at this time was pre-Delta. 
So we were trying to get as much vaccine into folks and hoping that we wouldn't have a variant that was more contagious and spreads quicker than our ability to roll out vaccine. Effectively, we did not have the uptake in vaccine that we would have needed. We didn't have enough eligible adults getting vaccinated when they could have in April, May, and June. Mm -hmm. And by July, there was Delta and it overtook everything. And my view is by July, we really lost any chance of of getting uh, possible true herd immunity. And the other major factor, by my view, is the fact that, you know, this virus, like some other viruses out there, has animal reservoirs. So it's not something that is only spread person to person. That's something that we can sometimes angle toward a herd immunity when we have a long-lasting vaccine, a virus or illness that is not mutating quickly over time, and that only has humans as their host. When we have a virus that does mutate significantly over time and vaccine efficacy that wanes over time and a virus that has animal reservoirs, we're certainly not out vaccinating animals to date, this could be in and out of our human population for years and years and years to come, making herd immunity something that is a little out of reach. So would it help if more people got vaccinated? Absolutely. That's going to be, you know, these feels that we have right now, um, you know, yes, numbers are coming up. And yes, we are all hearing about cases of COVID when we're like, oh, my gosh, I thought that we would have a much quieter spring and summer. We still are comparatively, but there are a lot of breakthrough cases. And I think that people need to get vaccinated primarily if they have had no doses of vaccine. If you've had only two doses, you have to get that booster dose. That's going to be the best protection we have against Omicron that's circulating right now to keep any breakthrough infection at a minimum. And, you know, folks that are recovering from Omicron currently are going to have some durable antibodies for at least some time. And that's what gives us that herd immunity feel. So we need as many antibodies in the population as possible, vaccine induced and from recovery. Doctor, a lot of families have just wrapped up spring break trips, mine included. Can you give some guidance on on how they can protect themselves and their community upon returning? You know, I think uh, many people have gotten used to going mask-free, and in many circumstances, especially outdoor activities, less crowded activities, it is reasonable to be mask-free. But be mindful of what you've just done. If you've just done a lot of traveling, visiting with people, indoor gatherings, big uh, religious gatherings, or something along those lines, it may be reasonable when you know you're going to be in close contact with others to go ahead and have a mask on you uh, during that period of time for, you know, 10 days to two weeks after return from travel to make sure you don't develop some symptoms, to make sure that you don't uh, test positive yourself. It's also reasonable to uh, grab one of those home tests that we should have on hand and go ahead and test yourself about five days after your travel. Um, You know, that's going to be provided that you didn't have any additional higher risk exposures. That's going to be a good sweet spot symptoms or not, to see if you may be an asymptomatic carrier of the virus after having traveled. I see. And for those of us who haven't traveled yet, doctor, what supplies should we bring along just to stay safe? 
You know, we did have, uh, you know, travel um, mask requirements extended through early May, uh, and that is reasonable with the way we are seeing numbers right now. So make sure that you have a good fitting mask uh, for your travel, whether you're on public transportation or whether you're going to be traveling by plane. Hand sanitizer is certainly reasonable if you don't have easy access to wash your hands. And aside from where it's required to be shoulder to shoulder, like on an airplane, you know, still maintaining a, a social distance when you're indoors or, you know, focusing on activities that are less crowded is always going to be less risk for you. Before I let you go, doctor, what are you looking out for as the BA2 variant just continues to spread? I'm looking for community trends leading towards more hospitalizations and more stress on our healthcare communities. You know, I think we are going to see more breakthrough cases, yes. But if they stay mild, and for the most part, people are recovering at home and back to their routine in several days, that's one thing that we can live alongside. At this moment, I'm not seeing an overwhelming stress on our hospitals. If that starts to happen, that will raise red flags, and we will have to seriously consider rolling back on some of these medications. That's infectious disease specialist Dr. Mia Teramina of Dooley Health and Care. Doctor, thanks for your time. Thank you. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.